Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, revisiting Ferguson. All right, Richard, the Justice Department has just released a couple of reports relating to the events that happened in Ferguson last summer. Uh, let's take them separately. First, there was the report that exonerated Darren Wilson, the officer involved in Michael Brown's shooting death. The feds had continued looking into this after the grand jury in St. Louis County opted not to indict him. Uh, what does this report tell us about what actually happened? Well, I mean, when I read the report, I was absolutely stunned at how clear the evidence turned out to be. If you're just simply looking at the mechanics of this report and the level of professionalism that it brought to the task, these were exceedingly high. Uh, they did all sorts of physical evidence. They did all sorts of forensic evidence. They managed to interview anonymously well over 100 witnesses. And what they came out with essentially was the conclusion that everything that Darren Wilson had said had happened had happened exactly the way in which he had said it. Um, it turns out that Brown had robbed a convenience store with a friend. When he was stopped on the street, he reached in an effort to get Wilson's gun. There was an exchange there. Um, there were gunpowder wounds on him. Uh, when he got out of the car, he told Wilson, Wilson told Brown to stop. Brown started away and then came dashing at him and was running at him full tilt at the time that he was shot. And so uh, if you're trying to figure out what's a paradigmatic case of justified homicide, uh, this turns out to be it. And there's nothing in the evidence that points to the other way. Time and time again, what the Justice Department goes out of its way to do is to discredit all of those witnesses, say, oh, he had his hands up, he was standing still, he was running away, and so forth. The physical evidence does not support it. And that's exactly the way you want to have an inquiry run, which is uh, you take the things that cannot be fabricated, the physical and forensic evidence, DNA stuff and so forth, look at that first, and the testimonial stuff has to square with that. Otherwise, it's going to be bogus. And much of it did, but some of it, of course, did not. Now, I know that you think that releasing the report wasn't enough, that the DOJ actually has an affirmative obligation here to make some noise about this. Explain what you think they should be doing. Well, I think two things. One is the way in which they described it is what they made it appear as though, well, it may have been justified, but they don't call it a justified homicide. Uh, what they say is there's nothing here that would allow you to prosecute this particular case, and so the case is closed. Not prosecuting a case is consistent with not only the evidence as they presented it, but also with the view, well, we're not quite sure what's going on. You've got to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. Can't do it. Um, and so sometimes you don't prosecute because the case is too weak, but that's not what's going on here. And other times you don't prosecute because the guy who's being charged was in fact correct. And that seems to be the case with respect to Wilson. If you'll recall, there are all sorts of stories out there about how photographs had been fabricated and touched up, wrong people had been identified, really adamant stuff. And once you do that, my view is if your name is Eric Holder and you read a report like that, you have to say in the report uh, that all of these charges were wrong. And then you have to go public and say, look, I know I was with you protesters when this started, but it turns out everything that you thought about Darren Wilson was wrong. Uh, what we have to do is to understand we are protesting perfectly lawful acts. And that's just not the way this thing has come across. I mean, the man's life has been ruined by this. I mean, he's been let go from the police force. God knows if he could 
show his face in public again. His reputation has been shattered. His personal life has surely been harmed. It seems to me that putting a report out there and just leaving it sit is not enough. Worse than that, of course, they couple this with the report on Ferguson itself, which is, to put it mildly, written by different people, and it's something of a hatchet job. It's not that it doesn't contain grains of truth. It just puts everything out of perspective. And note the irony is that the whole reason for the Ferguson investigation was you were trying to figure out what culture there was that would spawn this kind of reckless shooting. It turns out whatever the culture was, it didn't spawn any reckless shooting because the conduct was fully justified. At this point, the investigation of Ferguson gives rise to the following question. Of all the gin joints, as our good friend Rick Wayne said in Casablanca, <laughs> why do you want to come into this one? I mean, if you want to investigate what's going on on traffic stops and violations and forfeiture, uh, there are comprehensive reports reports out there by organizations like the Institute for Justice and the American Civil Liberties Union, which indicate that these practices are all too pervasive. The federal government, by the way, is not innocent of them, and in fact, in many cases, is one of the leading malfactors with respect to this. But no, it's a study on Ferguson, which is designed to basically force all of its public officials out, and there's no sense of comparison, no sense of perspective, and that report gets so much publicity that you almost forget about the fact that Darren Wilson was in fact found correctly understood to have committed only justifiable homicide for which no sanctions whatsoever are deserved. In fact, he should be reinstated on the force if he had the courage to return. All of this stuff turns out to be essentially when you put the two reports together, a, an unfortunate use of the power of the attorney general to skew and in my mind to inflame the racial debate. I think he's a bad attorney general on these issues because he's too much of a partisan and not enough of a neutral arbitrator, which is what you'd expect of every white attorney general and I expect it of every black one. Let's go through some of the pieces of this second report since you mentioned it, since it is getting so much attention. First of all, they lodge a criticism. This is what you were referencing a minute ago, and it's not an uncommon criticism these days, that law enforcement priorities in Ferguson are skewed because they're primarily directed towards raising revenue instead of public safety issues. So explain the details of their criticism there and whether you find it persuasive. Well, this is a constant problem in every town. Uh, $8 million budget or so, and over $1 million of this comes from fine and traffic offenses, which is a substantial cost. But there are no comparative figures which would say, well, what is it in a place like Chicago where it's clearly going to be small or other small towns of, of this particular sort? And so to sort of single this place out as being somehow or other a snake pit um, in the United States kind of gives you the very wrong impression because there are no comparisons. There's the second problem, of course, is we know there are fines, but one of the things that you want to ask about the fines is do they actually deter? And this is, of course, you know, a very hard question, but at least some of the defenses that I've seen say, you know, we put heavy fines, we make sure that people who don't show up in the court get arrested and punished by this. Um, it actually has increased the safety on our streets. So you get both of those kinds of issues coming out of this case. And, and all of this stuff seems to simply get lost in this kind of report as if somehow or other what's going on in Ferguson is completely inappropriate relative to what happens on everywhere else. Now, my Mind you, I'm not giving them a clean bill of health. Uh, that's not the real issue in this case. The real issue in this case is why it is that you think that this city is so different from other cities in which you have the same kinds of double imperatives that are going on. There is then a further information, which is more tricky, about the frequency of black arrests. Uh, those are somewhat higher or stops, not arrests traffic stops relative to the yield on drugs. But of course, many of these traffic stops aren't done in order to collect drugs. These searches are done incident to arrest. 
fast. And the question you want to ask is whether or not they're correlated with speeding violations. And, you know, it's one of the melancholy facts in the United States that the actual rate of fatal accidents for black drivers, particularly male drivers, is higher than it is for the white population. So if you're doing traffic stops, this kind of reflects the underlying incident. And the reason why I mentioned fatal accidents is that every serious researcher who tries to figure out what's going on with driving safety knows that you can't fake the fatal accident reports. Everything else is going to be somewhat subjective under these things. And what you really want to see is somebody who looks at all of these kinds of comparisons to see, A, whether or not there's anything inappropriate that's taking place in Ferguson, and B, if there's anything out of the ordinary. And that is just what was not done in this report. Well, and the next issue, the one that seems to be getting the most attention, is that the DOJ report notes a disparate impact in policing. In other words, African-Americans end up disproportionately relative to their share of the population uh, interacting with the police. And that tells us what exactly, Richard? It tells us absolutely nothing. I mean look, <laughs> one of the, the most dangerous pieces of, of stuff that comes out of the, the Holder Justice Department is the definition of disparate impact that they use, whether it's in education or in employment or in the traffic stop case. Is there a higher percentage of blacks relative to the general population which has been subject to some kind of discipline or sanctions and so forth? That's the wrong definition. The right definition says relative to the rate of offenses is there some disparate for treatment. Uh, so what you do is you have the following serious position. If you insist that if there are only 67% of the community is African-American, only 67% of the stops should be African-American, what are you supposed to do if in fact the actual rate of violence or, or violations of law is 85-15? Do you decide to prosecute white people who have done nothing wrong? Do you decide to let some African-Americans go who've done something wrong? None of this makes the slightest bit of sense. The correct view on these things about disparate impact is when you have two people who do similar things and you examine the way in which they're treated. One gets a pass and the other does not. That's not what's happened in this case. And mind you, in addition to the fact that they're using the disparate impact test wrong, the disparate impact test is always a little bit problematic because it doesn't necessarily indicate that there's any form of disparate treatment. And ideally, you'd like to be able to show something of that sort. The best that the government was able to come up with that is the Justice Department, were a bunch of emails, seven, I think, in total, last one which dates from 2011, in which there were arguably some kind of racist sentiments. You know, you're talking about a huge police force, seven emails out of hundreds of thousands doesn't strike me as talking about a climate of opinion. And what's clearly going on here is that the Justice Department is trying to lard on one thing on top of another, and, and they don't want to sort of ask the hard questions about, you know, is this really signs of systematic racism? Do you really think, as Mr. Holder sometimes seemed to think, that the world hasn't changed much from 1965? We had problems in Selma then. We have problems in Ferguson now. And I think it just does a gross disservice to the town uh, to put them under this kind of situation and to force people out. As I said before, you've got to get the right measures and you have to ask about this problem much more persuasively. And I don't know what the true situation is in Ferguson, but if you don't have any comparative data in there, uh, then it's quite clear that the Justice Department hasn't done its work. And indeed, the contrast between the two reports is just striking between the careful assembly of evidence on the Wilson issue, which is then completely ignored when they start to talk about Ferguson. It's not even mentioned. So a question about how this all plays out going forward. Jonathan Capehart, who's an African-American columnist in the Washington Post, who was roused to anger when this story began, he wrote this week that when he was reading the report 
on Officer Wilson, this DOJ report. I'm quoting him here. It forced me to deal with two uncomfortable truths. Brown never surrendered with his hands up, and Wilson was justified in shooting Brown, end quote. However, he says later in the same piece, quoting him again, yet this does not diminish the importance of the real issues unearthed in Ferguson by Brown's death. Is is this going to be the narrative going forward that, look, the facts of the case may not have been what we said initially, but the broader point remains that African Americans in this country can't trust the police to do their job equitably? Well, of course, you don't – if anything, the first thing you have to say is that that proposition is sort of roundly refuted by the very instance that they thought established it, namely the fact that uh, Wilson did not shoot – do anything improper. Right. And you know, if you don't recalibrate by taking that into account, it's clearly going to be incorrect. Secondly, with respect to the statistical evidence, as I've mentioned before, you really have to look at it, but you have two uncomfortable truths to figure about. One is whether or not there's differential enforcement against black – individuals and this by the way could be by african american officers as well as everybody else because these police forces are no longer lily white in most places in the united states whatever the situation is in ferguson and you have to deal with that and then you also have to deal with the rate of crime that starts to take place and if there's a differential crime rate you expect and hope to see a differential arrest rate are reflecting those kinds of differentials so you want to really run another kind of question which is now you start looking at a community where you have systematically higher rates of infractions in all of these areas, uh, what are you going to do to heal yourself? I mean, what you really want to have many black leaders say is look at these kinds of numbers. There may be things wrong with the police, but there's something wrong with the way in which we raise our families, the way in which we deal with our own communities. We cannot simply export the blame on every one of these issues. So if I hear all of that, then I think there's a chance to having a real conversation on this. Uh, but if it's just a question of saying all of the specific charges we made on them, which we hung our hats turn out to be wrong, but we're still right on the general point, much weaker argument. And remember, this situation here is no different from the one that was with Trayvon Martin, where again, the evidence seems pretty clear uh, that Jimmerman did not do anything which would have sort of attracted that kind of rancor. The one case in which I think there is a claim in which there was some inappropriate police conduct was the killing through strangulation of Eric Garner uh, where you have the stuff on tape and even that's a tricky case because it was a resisting arrest case. But resisting arrest is a pale image of attacking a police officer which is what seemed to have happened in this particular circumstances. So my hope is that we will now get greater clarity on this issue because a leader of the United States, the president, the attorney general, and so forth says, look, I mean, we were clearly wrong on this stuff when we started out. We have to reflect not only on the sins of other individuals, we have to reflect on the fact that our own shortcomings are revealed by the way in which we jump to judgment. I can still recall I was on the Charlie Rose show the day that Trayvon Martin thing broke. And, you know, my three columnists or, or three pairs, two of them in particular, Walter Judge. Walter Dellinger and Jeffrey Tubin, they were sure that a guy who's wearing a hoodie is marked for extinction. And, you know, I've done enough as a criminal law professor, not that it's my main beat, but I do teach it and so forth, to realize you never want to prejudge a self-defense case when there are these complicated interactions. And it turns out in both of these cases, the early snap judgment were wrong, which ought to give us some degree of caution before we start taking to the airwaves with invective against an establishment official who's done nothing wrong. And that is true of George Zimmerman, just the way it turns out to be true in this particular case of uh, Darren Wilson. 
One more question, Richard, and we'll, we'll end here. One of the grand hopes that attended the Obama administration, one that even most people who opposed him invested in, was the idea that by electing an African-American president, we'd be taking a huge step towards ameliorating racial tension in this country. The president's more than three-quarters of the way done. Um, are we backsliding on racial relations in this country? Oh, I think without question we are, and I think all the polls showed that. I think the notion that racial relations have gone south relative to what they were six or seven years ago um, is shared by a very large fraction of the country. I mean, it used to be people thought racial relations were okay at 65% of the population. Now it's around 45% of the population. And there's a reason for all of this stuff. You really start to put these things on and you accuse large numbers of people of very serious wrongs that they haven't committed. They're going to be quite resentful of what's going on. And with respect to Holder and so forth, you just see it all the way through. I mean, everything he does with respect to the enforcement of, of various laws, of civil rights laws and so forth, have been extremely aggressive, in many cases, I think, on principle. Um, uh, and then, of course, he takes after the banks. And I could just mention one incident. There was an exchange between the Attorney General's office and a man named Bob Goodlotty about the question of whether or not in the bank settlements uh, money was siphoned off to Akon and La Raza and so forth. I read the exchange and commented on it. Uh, Goodlotty had some very tough questions. He and Henseling was on it as well uh, to the Justice Department. They just didn't bother to answer them. And essentially what this did is you couldn't get a direct appropriation to these groups. And what was going on was the government had entered into a settlement. And what the settlement had said to the banks, if you pay, take $2 off for the amount of money you have to pay in reparations, We'll let you take $2 off of the amount of money you have to pay in reparations to various mortgage holders if, in fact, you contribute lump sums to various organizations, um, which, in fact, in searching in the cause of racial justice. And these turn out to be the ones that were given. And, you know, this is, to my mind, completely improper for the uh, Justice Department to want to do siphon off funds in that particular fashion. And the answer they gave essentially stonewalled all of the serious questions that were put there. There was a hearing on it. I mean, I was amazed. Um, and somebody says, well, there's no problem here. The banks were represented by counsel. Of course, they were represented by counsel. Counsel, which would tell their clients, you know, it's a good deal if you could save close to $2 for every $1 you contribute to these organizations. But that's not the same thing as saying it's appropriate for the government. Nobody should ever ask for a diversion of funds from one legitimate purpose to another as part of a settlement. And when I see things like that going on and know that other things are like it, I lose all confidence in an administration that's prepared to play this kind of stuff. And I just hope that the president, who prides himself on this, realizes that you can't be a partisan on the one hand and, and be a president on the other. I mean, a president has to be prepared to say to his own support group, and remember, his black support in the United States is upwards of 90, 92 percent and so forth. Friends, I know you voted for me, and friends, I think under these circumstances, you are wrong. And if you can't bring yourself to say that, then you can never improve race relations, and we will have this increasing polarization and divide. Uh, the rhetoric is getting bad. In fact, one of the things that troubled me about some of the comments on the Hoover site is they were really personally nasty, almost racist themselves. That's not what you want to do. You want to lower the temperature and that requires that you make apologies when you've been wrong and that's where I think it was that Mr. Holder has not put forward. I mean, he should really have come out and said in no uncertain terms, we really maligned this man and we are very sorry that we did it. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. 
And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.